that was fun. I want to invite you to turn uh, in a Bible to the book of Ephesians, where we'll uh, hang out mostly here today as we start our new series in Ephesians, and then we'll kind of cap it off with some words of Jesus in John. But go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 3. Um, and, and one of the things uh, that I love about what we just saw with the idea of Legos is it's like one of those toys that has stood the test of time and generations. Like, you think about it, it like, the, like the pathway to entry is for everyone, like whether a little child and those like big Duplo blocks to, you know, a teenager or even adult who can, you know, create things that rival like modern day architecture. Like Legos are the toy that seem to transcend all ages and abilities. And I think that's why I like it as an illustration for our series on Ephesians. As we think about the kind of foundations and how you build something uh, with Legos, that in the same way we are building our faith and we want to do that on a firm foundation. And the book of Ephesians is a very unique book that actually points to the foundational elements of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And so we see these building blocks that are for whether you're like totally brand new to the whole Christian church, God thing, or you've been doing it for years, that these are the things that we can return to again and again to build our faith and our foundation uh, on Jesus. Uh, because it's not the basics. I think that's what we sometimes we miss. Like the basics, it's like, it's basic. Like we, like we move on from the basics, but foundations we live in, we build on time and time uh, again, And so as we look at this idea of foundations for following Jesus in the weeks ahead, we're going to start, uh, it would seem like in an odd spot, in the middle of the book of Ephesians uh, with this first week of the series. And what I want to share with you is not just uh, the foundations for what it looks like to follow Jesus as a church, as that's what this, uh, this book, or really it's actually not even a book, it's a letter. It was a, a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church at Ephesus with the idea that it would then be circulated to other churches to provide this foundation. And so that's what we're going to do throughout the number of weeks that we have in this series together. But today I want to start with, you could say, your church, our church, the foundations of specifically First Christian Church, right here in Decatur, what God has uniquely called us to and had us be a part of over our existence and what it looks like for us to build on this foundation for now, um, 189 years. Uh, I don't know if all of you know this. Some of you do, some of you probably don't. We're the oldest church in this city, established in 1834, uh, that originally met in uh, a log cabin courthouse downtown uh, where actually Abraham Lincoln housed a law office. And so it's like crazy that we shared space with Abraham Lincoln. You know, we have no record of him attending First Christian Church, though we like to think he probably did. Um, like everybody likes to claim Lincoln. Uh, but it's just, it's just this, this re, like we predate the Civil War. Like it just seems like a crazy reality, the, the amount of history that is behind us as a church. And so what I want to share with you is kind of how our church got established and the foundation of which we've been building on for the last 189 years and counting because we're a part of this. And we should, we should know and understand where it is that we come from as we move into the future. So the story or the movement of churches of which the Christian churches uh, understand our roots is something called the Stone Campbell Restoration Unity Movement, or more simply just put, the Christian churches. Uh, and this movement of churches actually has its beginnings in 1832, and then again, 1834, so just two years later, on the very front end of this movement, this church was established. Uh, and the reason that I want to share this with you is, uh, again, to build on your foundation as you understand the church that you came from, uh, but more so this idea, like, I guess, here's my fear. 
is that as I talk about the story and the history of our church, what I don't want this to be, as I don't want this to feel like some sort of like random congregational meeting or maybe like a church history class that you didn't sign up for, but all of a sudden you kind of feel stuck in. Uh, that's my hope to not do here today. But what we want to do, um, maybe you've heard the saying, you know, that those who don't learn history are doomed to repeat it. I see some nods, yeah. Well, we want to kind of do the inverse of that, that we want to understand our history and the good things that God has called us to in that so that we can be determined to make sure that we do repeat the good things that God has called us to uh, into the future as we build on the past of 189 years that he has established for us. And so, again, we're going to jump right into the middle of the book of chapter 3. And here's where Ephesians is headed. What you're going to see, and we would encourage you to maybe read the whole book of Ephesians, this whole letter, uh, next week. And there's six chapters. And the first three chapters really point to the foundational understandings of what it is that we believe. And then chapters four, five, and six are the foundations of how we, then you could say, live that out practically, what we believe. And so what's interesting in Ephesians is right between chapter three and four is, you could say this, like a hinge on a door where both the kind of the foundational belief understandings play into what we do. Because here's the truth about our church, and and any church, it should be the case, um, where what we believe informs what we do and everything we do. I think sometimes you get in these settings like, okay, so what do you believe as a church? Well, do you believe this, do you believe this? Oh, okay, great, great. And then you get on to what you do. No, 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 we understand that everything we believe informs everything that we do that's to be interconnected. And so we're gonna see how that has come together for our church and that's how it should come together for your life as part of this church moving forward, okay? And so we invite you to read that on your own. If you wanna go deeper, as has been mentioned, there is a study on Right Now Media that you can do a deeper dive. You can do that individually, uh, but we'd encourage you to explore doing that with others as well because if there's anything the church is, uh, it is at its baseline level what Jesus created, uh, relationships with other people that are designed to encourage your ultimate relationship with God. That we're not in this alone. That's the whole point of the church. That we're in this together as kind of that saying might go, but how it's meant to be true for the church. So if you're not a part of a relationship uh, where you're kind of sharpening one another or part of a small group or something, I would strongly encourage you to, uh, if you don't have to rush off to anywhere, to hang around for that group launch and uh, at minimum get lunch out of it, uh, but maybe even get some relationships with some other people that will encourage your ultimate relationship with God. Okay, enough ads, enough promo. Here we go. Jumping in to Ephesians chapter three, starting in verse 14. And what I want you to see as you look through this passage are two themes, two key words that really uh, represent our church and the movement behind it, and that is restoration and unity. These are the two words, and I'll explain what those mean as we go through it, okay? I keep threatening to read this passage. I think we're going to do it now. You ready? It's like, yeah, get on with it. All right. Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 14. The Apostle Paul writes to the church. He says, for this reason, and this reason is the last two and a half chapters of what we believe about the good news and the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, for all of this reason, for because of the gospel, he says, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. He says, and I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. 
You know, there's these certain passages in Scripture that uh, I feel like I always want to have a Bible in one hand and a highlighter in the other, or a pen or pencil, because it's just so packed full of meaning and things that I want to capture. And so I asked, and I said, I'm not allowed to write on this, uh, but they did help me out by doing some bolding and some underlining and some italicizing. I don't know if italicizing is a word, but we're going to roll with it here. Uh, as we just kind of, I want you to kind of see what elevates uh, in this passage as we kind of work through it just one more time. Again, the Apostle Paul says that I kneel before the Father, meaning God the Father, he is the source of all of this. He is the, like, the subject of every sentence. Like He is the purpose. Coming out of God the Father, of whom every family here in heaven and on earth derives its name. So we're all under that umbrella of God the Father. And then out of that, the Apostle Paul says, I pray. We could say that this is the goal. This is what we're after. I'm praying, he says, that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with the power through his spirit in your inner being. And so again, we're seeing it's all about God. It's about his riches, his power, his spirit. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through your faith. And he goes on and says, and I pray that you being rooted and established. And so there we see that idea of foundation, right? That we're rooted and we're established and our foundation is in what? In the love of God. In the love uh, that we might, out of his love, have power together. And so together, that's us, the church, with all the Lord's holy people. And so it's not just our church, but it's the church, God's whole church, uh, to grasp, and I love this description of God's love, how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ, this all-encompassing love, and that you would know not that it's just a love that's out there somewhere, but that you would know this love of God. This love that actually surpasses knowledge. So you wouldn't just know it, that you would experience it, be in your heart, that it would be driving your life from your head, from your heart, to your hands and your feet, that you might be in all of it filled to the full measure of all the fullness of God. Now, I don't know how full that is, but that sounds pretty full to me. And so from there, as we think about the fullness of what God's up to in us as his church, he goes on, the Apostle Paul, to say where the power and really just the purpose for all of this comes from and where it's all going toward. He says, now to him. This is kind of the concluding word on what we believe in chapter three that informs everything we do, chapter four, five, and six, at this hinge point. Now to him, who is able to do immeasurably more than we ask or think or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to who? To him alone. To him be the glory in the church. The church is existing to glorify him and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. And so if our church exists to develop devoted followers of Jesus Christ, then we do that uh, for the purpose of, it's not about us, but it's about in all of that that we would glorify and give credit and honor to God, that they would get all the glory in the church. And it's here you could say that we identify that very first word of the understanding of this movement of churches that we are about. And that first word, that foundation, is that we would be 
restorative, that we would do restoration. Namely, what that means is restoration of the church as we see it established originally in the New Testament, that that is the aim of this understanding of our church, that we're looking to restore the church that we see in the first century A.D., 20 centuries later, as we now express it here on the planet. You could, you could say kind of go into the original, as again, it says, to God's glory in the church in Christ Jesus throughout all generations by looking at the, the OG. I didn't know what OG meant, and I've learned from my kids that that means original, okay? So the OG, the original first generation church, how it was designed to be, and then how long is that supposed to last? All generations, forever and ever, amen, until Christ returns again. And so that's, that's our goal. And so how is it then, you could say as a church, do we restore uh, the first generation church 20 centuries later? Well, it all takes place through that second word, unity. That we would restore the New Testament church as we are unified around these ends. Chapter four, as we swing the door, swing the hinge into living this out, uh, we see this from the Apostle Paul, picking up verse one, chapter four. He says, as a prisoner of the Lord, then, I urge you, this is how you live it out, live a life worthy of the calling you have received in those first three chapters, the gospel of Jesus. And that calling, by the way, it's not like, a, like some sort of like, pastoral, vocational call to ministry. The calling, the word here, is talking about our shared calling in Christ, that if we have made a commitment and accepted Christ as our Savior and Lord, like we share this calling from God as followers of him. And so how do we live this out? Verse two says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient and bear with one another in love. Like this is the kind of life that we want together. And in doing so, make every effort to keep the unity, there's that word, to keep the unity uh, of the Spirit, God's Holy Spirit, through a bond of peace, the peace of Christ that holds us together. Because, and here it is, here's how this unity plays out. Check it out, there is only one body, his church, one Spirit, just as you were called, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. And so, I just want you to catch, I know we're kind of flying through some of these things, but just catch like the fullness and the comprehensiveness of the unity that we have around our God. That there is only one Lord who is Jesus Christ of which flows one Holy Spirit of which we share by one faith as we celebrate in one baptism that we celebrate just as Christ died and buried and rose again, that that's what our baptism is all about and that we would be unified as one body. One body, one church, his church in all that we are and do. And so as we kind of, again, kind of race through this a little bit, I just, you get this sense like, okay, this is good stuff. Like, this makes sense. Like, this is what a church should be about. This is what should, we should all, and it's almost like this question like, why is it that there was a movement in church history in the 1800s that even needed to say, hey, we need to make sure that we're focusing on restoring what the Bible says about how to do church and that we're unified around this? And because to me, I'm kind of thinking, isn't that what all churches were supposed to be doing like over the course of the last like 2,000 years? Like, what was it that happened in the history of the church that caused the need for such a movement of people to say, hey, time out, we need to get back to what the scriptures say about being authoritative in what it looks like to live, believe, and practice church. And then we'd have to actually say that we would have to be unified around this. Why wouldn't we already? Well, to answer that question, 
I'm gonna need a little help from my audience here. So I have handpicked six volunteers already, so guys and gals, come on up. And here's why I already picked you out uh, ahead of time. I learned at the five o'clock Saturday night service that when you're in church and you ask for six volunteers, just out in the open, you know how many show up? Goose egg, zero. So lesson learned and a little less awkward, uh, just a little awkward here. All right, so here, what I want you to do, you're gonna see there's white lines, six of them here, get this out of your way here, and just pick a line, any line. Um, there's really no prizes there, but uh, you can grab one anyway, okay? All right, I think there's one more at the end there, Caleb, thank you. Okay, all right, so here's what I wanna do. I want to give you, the kind of, again, how did we get here? I wanna give you a full history of the church from beginning to where we are today in five minutes or less, okay? So again, my concern was that this wouldn't feel like a church history class you got trapped in. Uh, I might have lied. So, all right. So here's where we're at. So we've got, you could say like, here is uh, like the New Testament going this way and the Old Testament of the Bible this way. So the Old Testament, so this is like moving forward. This is our timeline in history. This is uh, right here at like zero, okay? And so you've got the scriptures in the Old Testament pointing to the coming of Jesus, okay? And so, Lindley, you are gonna represent, like, kind of at the, you know, got B.C., before Christ, A.D., Anno Domini, year of our Lord, and so Jesus comes. And so, Jesus comes, we know, as a little baby at Christmas that we celebrate, so you just have to hold Jesus. Be careful, you know, it's Jesus, all right? And, okay, and then Brooke, you're gonna represent, so we know that Jesus came, he lived, he died for the forgiveness of our sins, and so that, that life, I'm gonna, we know that he came to live. Would you just like put like a cross with your hands there just to kind of represent that that's what Jesus came to do? And so, okay, our girls here represent Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first four books of the New Testament, and they volunteered you, Lindley, just so you know, so you can blame Brooke, yeah, yeah, they called you out uh, to get you in up here. All right, and so with that, you got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then from there, the next book in the New Testament is the book of Acts, and so Nathan, in the book of Acts, the first chapter, right after, Jesus says to Peter and the apostles that the Holy Spirit's gonna come upon you and you're gonna be my witnesses and you're gonna proclaim this story that I have come for, this reality. And so what I need you to do is be Peter. Could you be Peter? Can I change your name to Peter for just a few seconds? Okay, awesome. All right, so Nathan slash Peter, I want you just to hold your hands up like this and proclaim the story of Jesus into the future right there. So right there, we're just gonna turn you oh so easily there. Perfect, all right, <laughs> wonderful, fantastic. And so here's what happens. Peter preaches the first Christian sermon, other than the ones that Jesus preached, if we count those, obviously we should, uh, ever in Acts chapter two. And he basically proclaims all of this reality of who Jesus is and what he has done. And he's preaching, and the, the people there, it says that they were cut to the heart. Like they were convicted by what Peter was preaching. And so they ask him in the middle of the message, like, well, you know, they say to Peter and the apostles, like, brothers, what shall we do? To which Peter responds, repent. Turn from your ways, turn towards God, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, for, uh, of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so with that, they respond, and it says in verse 41, that those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. And it was on that day that the church began. And so we've got 3,000 people, they accept Jesus, the church begins, and then for the sake of time, Brittany, uh, we're just gonna have you represent like 1,500 years of church history, okay? So you just put your arms kind of wide like this, and you just represent all kinds of space and time. And so we'll say during Brittany's part of the timeline, some stuff happened. 
Some stuff went down, some good, some not so good. So 1,500 years of church history. And then as a result of some of the not so good stuff that had come to this point in the church, um, there was all kinds of, you couldn't even tell the difference between a political leader and a religious leader had gotten so intermeshed. It was all a mess. There was all kinds of corruption in the church. And so this guy by the name of Martin Luther shows up in the 1500s and says, hey, time out. Like, this is not good. This is not right. And so he nails to the church door, you might be familiar familiar with this, uh, 95 theses, his 95 ideas on how the church should do better. And so that wasn't received so well. And so he was trying to reform the church, make it better. He wasn't trying to split it. But unfortunately, we had, you could say, the biggest church split you ever did saw in uh, the 16th century, the 1500s. And so with that, um, Brock, we're going to have you do what I'm going to say is your best Spider-Man right here. Can you give me a Spider-Man? So it's like two fingers like that. Yeah. And I want you to point that Caleb there. Perfect. Awesome. All right. And so what this Spider-Man webbing represents is the reality that once that church split happened, it didn't stop. Like the snowballs just kept going and going and going. And it was just like one, one denomination would say, well, you got it wrong and we've got it right. And then they said, no, you got it wrong. We got it right. And it just went and went and went until it got to the point where it says that the Center for Christian Studies around the world, that there is in our world, more than 45,000 registered Christian denominations. More than 45,000, like, how crazy is that? And so all this webbing, all these denominations, all these factions, all this disunity, all this, you got it wrong and we've got it right, leads us to the 1800s, where a couple of guys by the name of Barton Stone and Alexander Campbell, namely the Stone-Campbell movement, uh, said, this is nuts. This is crazy. We need to get back to, like, how are we gonna do church? How did they do it originally? And we need to unify ourselves around that. And so, you know what? I forgot to bring, we're gonna call this a Bible, okay? There's a Bible on there, there's a Bible app. So with, oh, Jonathan in the house, look at that. Okay. That's fine, I've been preaching for 30 minutes, but you get the claps, Jonathan, that's fine. (laughs) All right, so Caleb, Represents, so we've got, again, we want to get back to the word as our authority in all things. We want to restore this. And what I want you to do, Caleb, is give your Bible a hug because I want that to represent the, the unity that we're rallying ourselves around, okay? All right, so restoration and unity, that's how this movement and this church got started in response to all of that. Can we give our friends a big hand for being willing to do all this? Thanks, guys. All right, you can take that back. I don't need that more. All right, you guys can go back. And I think Jonathan has a free drink to Mosaic for putting up with my shenanigans. Uh, It's the least we could do, and we always try to do the least we can do around here. So, all right, with that, all right. So I wanna give you some examples, just real practically, how this plays out at our church, just to kind of get you familiar. Again, there's different reasons for different sermons, and and, and this is one of these ones where I really want you to understand kind of where you're at, what you're a part of, what we're about, and as you hear it, I think you'll be glad and thankful that you're part of a church that values these kinds of things that have been part of our story for 189 years and counting. Um, so a couple of just quick examples of how this plays out uh, in Christian churches and in our church in particular. Um, if you've been with us for a number of weeks, we've been celebrating uh, baptisms. People proclaiming their commitment to Christ through their own you know, death, burial, and resurrection through the water just identifies with Jesus. And the way that we practice that uh, here in our church is by immersion upon a profession of faith. And the reason that we do that is because we see in the New Testament that this is the way that baptisms were 
practice. And we are trying to, again, restore what we see in the New Testament in the way that we understand everything we should be doing here 20 centuries later. And so um, if you were not here with us uh, in this last series, or actually we did this um, on the story of Nicodemus with uh, this Meet Jesus series and using The Chosen. It was on April 15th and 16th. And we actually took like 20 minutes out of that message that's just all about baptism. So if you want to hear more about what we believe and what we practice uh, here at the Church of Baptism, you can just go to firsteducator.org slash baptism and you can catch the 20-minute portion of that uh, if you want to know more about what it would look like for baptism in your life and what we believe about that. Um, real quick, another example. One of the things that you'll notice here in our, uh, in our church, and maybe if you come from a different tradition, this is different, is that when it comes to communion, uh, maybe you call it uh, in a different tradition the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper, that we practice communion here, uh, the remembering of Jesus' body given, his blood shed through the taking of bread and a cup. We do that every week. We do that on a weekly basis. And I share that with you because the reason we do that is what's interesting is when you open up the Bible and you look at the New Testament, nowhere does it actually command a church that you have to practice communion weekly. Uh, it does, it's not a command, it's not an imperative, it's not something that says you must do this. However, what we see in the New Testament is that it was a, you could say, a normative practice. It was a normative practice uh, that the early church did do this. And we see this in 1 Corinthians 11, Acts chapter 20, where it says that when you gather, and as often as you gather, or, and on the first day of the week, and it's in these descriptions, and it shows that they then observed communion and celebrated communion together. And so maybe the best way to sum it up is what we see in the New Testament church. It's not prescriptive to celebrate communion on a weekly basis, but it was descriptive. It is descriptive. And so as part of a movement of churches that's aiming to do to the best of its ability to restore what we see in the first original first century church, 20 centuries, you know, 20 centuries later, that we practice communion on a regular basis. And again, let me just say, I'm not suggesting in any way that it's wrong or a sin for a church to practice monthly or quarterly or anything like that. But again, as an example of what we see displayed in the New Testament, we practice that as well, okay? And so hopefully that kind of helps explain a little bit of what that looks like, of what it looks like for us to restore, to be focused on restoring what we see in the New Testament church and to unify ourselves around that. And with that, just to kind of maybe just one more layer to really help drive this understanding home. Beyond these two words, I want to give us just two quick mantras uh, or slogans, if you will, that really encapsulates what this church and the movement of churches, the Christian churches, uh, really comes to uh, about. The first one is this. Um, this is not a phrase that was original with the Christian churches, but it's one that they adopted very early as understanding, and it's simply this. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. That as a church, so when it comes to what we believe and practice, so in the essentials, the things that we must do, we want to be unified around this, which comes from Scripture. In non-essentials, we have some, some liberty, some freedom, some open-handedness to it. But in all things, we have charity. You could say a, like a grace in the way in which we interact and engage about these things, maybe with those from other traditions or whatever. Um, and so here, here's, here's what this means. That when it comes to the essentials, that we would say Scripture is our authority on all things. Listen, this movement of churches was not the first movement of churches to say, hey, we need to get back to the Bible as our authority. I mean, again, kind of common sense. But... The uniqueness of this movement was, again, in the midst of all the spider webbing, all the splintering in a, in a season and a space in church history where everyone was splitting from everyone just to say, hey, you've got it wrong and we've got it right. It was, was in this movement that rather than 
restoring the Bible as our authority as this dividing factor, what was unique about the restoration movement was that we wanted to restore it as a, you could say, a unifying factor. That it's uh, meant to be something that restores unity, not divides us. Because, here's the truth, as we've read in Ephesians, like unity is actually a command. Like if we're gonna restore the Bible, then unity is one of those principles. And when we're disunified, the irony is, is that we're actually in direct violation of that which we are trying to restore and uphold. Again, remember we read it, every, make every effort, it said in Ephesians, to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace because there's only one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is in all, through all, and is overall. That this is the hope that which we share and are called to. And so it's in, you could say, the restoration and unity uh, of our church that we have this responsibility. And so that's how uh, our, our lay leaders, our elders, we call them, function. They are non-staff leaders of our church who have that responsibility to lead us in discerning essentials unity, non-essentials liberty, and in all things charity. Which you could say leads us to that second mantra, the second slogan, if you will, of the story of our church. And that is simply this. We would say... We are Christians only. We are not the only Christians. We are not the only Christians, but we are Christians only. In other words, we're not saying, like, we're the only ones that have it right or have it figured out, but we are saying we are Christians only. And, and there's a unity amongst the church beyond that. Again, one other way this plays out real practically. Uh, again, communion. We celebrate that on a weekly basis. Uh, in some traditions, many traditions, they practice what would be called closed communion. And closed communion is that you have to, uh, you could say, go through uh, the denomination's catechism, its religious educational system, be confirmed in that in order to celebrate communion within that denomination's worship services. Uh, but in the Christian churches, we practice what's called open communion. And what that means is that regardless of the particular denomination or tradition you come from, we would say, uh, according to the scriptures, that if Jesus Christ is the Savior and Lord of your life, then you don't have to be a member here. You are welcome and encouraged to participate and to worship God for what he has done in sending his one and only son who gave his body, who shed his blood as we remember him in the bread and the cup in communion together as his church. And so why do we practice open communion? Why do we do that this way? Well, because we're not saying we're the only Christians, but we are Christians, and we are Christians only. And so with this idea and these ideas in mind, um, it seems appropriate that we would uh, really conclude this message together by doing just that, by celebrating the central reality, the gospel of Jesus Christ as remembered in communion. And so this isn't just an afterthought to the sermon. This, this is the sermon. Uh, in fact, I kind of said at the beginning, like we've seen that this foundation that we see in Ephesians, it's actually built on the foundation, what the scriptures call the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. And in the words of Jesus to these same ends, check out what Jesus says in John chapter 17. Uh, they are his final words, his final prayer, as he actually goes to uh, the events that would result on us being able to celebrate the reality of what he did. So on the night he's betrayed, this is his final prayer, and it's for us, his church. This is what he prayed. He says, now this is eternal life, that they, and he's talking about his, his disciples who are with him to start. He says that they 
would know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. And then jumping down to verse 17, he says, sanctify my disciples, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And so again, this is important. This is that commitment that we wanna restore the truth that is God's word time and time again, that we're always getting after that. And then Jesus says, as he's praying to God the Father, as you sent me into the world, now I have sent them, his disciples, into the world. And he says that my prayer is not just for them alone, but I also pray for those who will believe in me through their message. And so that's us. We have believed in him through the message of the original disciples and going on beyond that. Verse 21, he says that all of them may be one. Again, that we would be unified, that we would be in unity. And so, Father, just as you are in me, Jesus says, and I am in you, may they also be in us. May we be in Christ and his love and how deep and wide and big and all that that is so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And so actually, if there was a third world or third word to the whole Christian church movement, it's actually uh, the umbrella word, kind of the why behind the what of unity and restoration, that the purpose of that kind of understanding is that the world may know that we would be able to uh, do evangelism, if you will, because I think we would agree there's probably no greater force working against letting the world know who Jesus is uh, to unify those efforts and the disunity that we see amidst you know, the 45,000 plus denominations. And so with that, we wanna be unified for the purpose of letting the world know. Verse 21, Jesus says, I've given them the glory that you gave me, that Holy Spirit's gonna be within them, that they may be one. Again, that we be unified and that as we are one, as Jesus' church, I and them and you and me, so that they, us, his church, may be brought to complete unity. It would be brought to complete unity, and then, Jesus concludes, the world will know. Then the world will know that you have sent me, and I have loved them even as you have loved So with this understanding, the great love of God that we have displayed in the goodness of him sending his one and only son, let's celebrate that gift together in communion. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for this reminder to make sure that regardless of whatever the topic is or the passage we're looking at, that it's all pointing back to your son who you gave at Christmas as a little baby who would then live to give his life so that we could be given the gift of a new life. And so together we remember his sacrifice and his body given as we take the bread in remembrance of him. And so let's take the bread together. And in the same way, Jesus said, this cup, is a new covenant, the new way of doing things um, in my blood and to drink in remembrance of his sacrifice to that end. Let's drink together. And Lord, your word says that whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, 
that we are proclaiming the gospel, the good news, the reality that you have come until it is that you come again. May it be in the name of Jesus.